Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Writing from the heart can be a struggle, especially when you're a single parent with a full-time job. That's where Marissa Orr found herself when she realized that the advice from her heroes, intended to help women get ahead in corporate jobs, was failing her, and perhaps failing the women around her as well. In this episode of Hack the Process, Marissa will tell us how her experience of modern feminism in business contradicts what we've been reading, why she now sees getting fired as a gift from the universe, and how her mindfulness practice helped her make room for writing. Today I'm speaking with Marissa Orr, and she's the author of a new book called Lean Out. Marissa, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great. Excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing well today, too. It, it's interesting. You, you read a title like Lean Out, and of course, immediately you think about Lean In, which got a huge publicity boost when it was released a few years earlier. Tell me a little bit about Lean Out and where it came from. Yeah. So Lean Out is really not just a counterargument to Lean In, although it, it is, also to modern feminism in general, because we've really been throwing the same solutions up against the wall for about 20 years now, and the numbers have not changed. So the first part of the book really explains everything we've gotten wrong about women at work. It overturns central theories behind the gender gap that we've sort of accepted as conventional wisdom. And then the, the second part is sort of attempts to rebuild a new model of understanding. So you said something interesting just there, which I wasn't expecting, which is that the book is a response to the direction that feminism has been going. And I know that that's kind of a controversial topic these days. I'm really curious where you come down on that. So the premise of, of Lean In, by extension, a lot of conventional wisdom on the topic, it really pins blame for the gender gap on women. So the prescriptions then, the solutions, the prescriptions for female success many times hinge on women acting more like men or changing in lots of ways. So being more ambitious and assertive. And there's all these books written on the confidence gap and all of this line of thinking. And in my book, I really pin the blame on our institutions, which have not changed. And, and by the way, the scope of the book, which I say in the introduction, is really limited to corporate America because the dynamics in those kinds of organizations are so different than small business or startups or, you know, even sort of individual professionals like attorneys, let's say, or doctors. So it's limited to corporate America. And in that respect, our institutions have not changed since the industrial age, a time where there was no women in the workforce. And since then, the entire economy and the composition of our workforce is transformed. But these structures have remained exactly the same. So what makes more sense? Rewiring women's personalities to fit this outdated system or rewiring a system to better meet the needs of a diverse workforce. And I think with modern feminism, a lot of times women's needs and wants are kind of dismissed. And I think that 
men and it's okay if men, men and women want different things at work. We should listen to women and embrace that, embrace what they want instead of sort of dismissing their stated needs and desires as a product of cultural oppression. I think when, when you attribute it to that, it's easy to dismiss what they say. Yeah, it's true that we're, we're living in a society that has evolved with institutions that have basically remained unchanged for generations, if not millennia, depending on how you look at it. We're facing a situation where the composition of the workforce and the composition of home life as well has altered dramatically, but our institutions haven't really kept up with those changes. Are you proposing then that it's more practical to look at changing those institutions than it is to adapting to those situations? I think that there's two different ways to approach it. And I have a chapter dedicated to each in the book. One is what companies can do to change the structure so that more women can have sort of meet their needs at work so they can be leaders on their own terms. So what I say really is people are diverse by their very nature. The reason that that diversity isn't reflected at the top of corporate America is because it's a system that only rewards a very narrow subset of behavior. And the winners of that specific game are always going to look the same if the rules don't change. So one of the things that I recommend for companies, and I go back to that point about people being diverse by their nature, is that companies need to create systems that people can trust enough so they can be themselves at work. And if you let people contribute the full range of their unique capabilities and offer a variety of incentives so that you're motivating an entire workforce, then naturally the people who rise to the top will be as diverse you know, as the, the human tapestry. So it's really about creating conditions of psychological safety. That specific term, I don't know if that's a, a sanctioned word in the area of organizational psychology, but it's really trust, right? When employees can trust the systems in which they work to meet their needs and be fair instead of arbitrary, then people can be themselves and you have a much happier workforce and a much diverse set of leaders within it. So that's on the, the company side. On the individual side, a lot of what I talk about is for women and any individual really is measuring your success as well-being instead of winning. Because I think so much of what we do in the corporate world is about winning. And that leaves a lot of women sort of unsatisfied because what are we winning? Sort of the only reward past a certain salary in a corporation is, is power, more power over more people. And only a subset of, of the human population is really rewarded by that. So a lot of women feel dissatisfied and disenchanted. And if they're measuring themselves against somebody else's definition of success, they're always going to be a little bit unhappy. So if we measure our own success on our own terms and think about our, our well-being, then that's really, to me, the definition of empowerment. I see. I see. And it, it kind of comes down to the the role models that we're given as children for what we can grow up to be and what directions we want to go in, and then how companies have established that reward structure and what we consider a reward for working at a company. How do you, how would you envision a company changing its reward structure in such a way that it could encompass people who have different ambitions other than power over people? Well, look, I have a lot of suggestions in the book for specific things, but I will be point blank in that 
doing all of that requires very powerful people to give up some of their power and change the structures that put them at the top in the first place. So I'm not sure that our corporations are ever going to change. And I think that if women wait for that to happen, it's going to be a long time. But if they really understand what it is that they want and ask for it, I think maybe eventually there's enough pressure on the system that things change from the bottom up or from the grassroots level. So it sounds like potentially you're talking about structures that will have to grow up independent of the existing corporations, which already have a power structure. So one thing I see that's really awesome and encouraging is the growth of female entrepreneurship. There's like hundreds of thousands of women. There's tons of them on Facebook. And there's all these women that have left that world unsatisfied and started things on their own terms. And I think that really could be the change over the next 20 years that sort of tips the scales. Interesting. So it's less about trying to break down the structures that exist in the current corporate America, but more about building up alternatives where people can find success in other fashions that may be more appropriate to their own inclinations. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it. You yourself come from a background who worked at a couple of very large companies that we're all familiar with, Facebook and Google. I'm curious how you came to some of these realizations. Yeah, sure. So I am a voracious reader and a bit of a research nerd, proudly. And I have always been fascinated, near obsessed with learning about psychology. And I've always had a very strong interest in, in gender I think the, the two things happen. In college, I took this course called Shakespeare from a feminist gendered perspective. And it was totally different than anything else I was taking because I was pushed into the business. I wanted to be an English major. My parents pushed me into business. So I, was, I just like took this almost like as a, being a rebel. I'm like, let me take something I actually want to learn about. And I was like so fascinated by it. It was a real paradigm shift in my mind in terms of like talks about gender construction, all this stuff I had no idea about. And then A few years later, I read another take on it by Steven Pinker, Modern Denial of Human Nature. And they were sort of these two diametrically opposed paradigms of gender. So I was just fascinated to learn everything I could about that. And then I became totally, totally fascinated with psychology in general, the science of human behavior. So I've read so much on this over the years. And then I, I read a lot of tons of business books. Now, what was interesting to me was over time, I spent 15 years in that in the corporate world or Facebook and Google. And over time, I began to realize that a lot of the business books that were starting to become more kind of behavioral economic kind of focused and incorporating some of these findings from the social sciences, I started to realize that they were based on this idea that in business, everybody works in their own best interests and, you know, people that perform well get promoted. And there were these linear relationships between your work and how far up you went. And I started to realize that a a corporation, though, doesn't have an equal power balance between employee or manager. So all the advice went out the window when you had certain type of manager. And so it just fascinated me. I started to really like poke around and see what do we accept is true in these books that doesn't to me stack up from my own experience. And a lot of the people writing these books about business that are psychologists or whatever have never worked in the corporate world. So to me, I was bringing both deep expertise, frankly, from given how much I've read and researched over the years, but with practical experience to sort of see what the gaps were. And because I've always been so passionate about helping women and, and gender issues, like 
it sort of just naturally evolved. And then at Google, I started getting kind of um, disenchanted and discouraged with all the female leadership events and programs when I was there. Um, Number one, like I said, instead of really listening to what the women in the audience had to say in terms of their challenges and how we could help them, we were just being lectured by very powerful women on how to be more like men. And I became sort of frustrated by that. I wrote my own lecture series that uh, as a passion project on the side, it started to get some traction. And then it's really what formed the basis for Lean Out. So you put together your own response, basically, to the way that that these powerful women were encouraging other women to follow the patterns of traditional corporate success, which has traditionally been male-dominated and follows this different approach to thinking and psychology and working with people. What were you encouraging the women in your lecture series to focus on and to drive toward? To define success on their own terms. So the original version of the lecture series was largely, it spent a little bit of time dissecting why the the gender gap exists, but then it really offered a framework for defining success on your own terms. And it was a really simple framework and people really responded to it. They really liked it. And so that's really the original direction that that took. I'd love to hear more about that framework. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It's actually not in the book, but I do refer to it. So keep in mind that this was sort of the original, the the incarnation of this whole thing. And it's changed a lot since then. And I actually don't go into it in too much detail at all in the book. Perhaps it will be a subject for another book. But I had learned this concept about strength and warmth in terms of all human character traits can be distilled into two very broad categories. And people use those two categories as criteria to judge what they think of you. And one is strength and one is is warmth. And I started to notice that in my mind, I'm like drawing this on a whiteboard as I talk to you. But basically, I drew an axis with strength on one side and warmth on the other. And we each have a kind of default position, the place on the continuum that we're most comfortable. The ideal is the midpoint, like a balance, like a very yin-yang kind of thing. Because my theory was what keeps you at the poles of strength and warmth is fear. And so the personal development framework was identifying where you are on this axis, kind of coming up with the fears that keep you from moving to the middle, and then like how those are overcome. To me, it's they're the most authentic. That's their true self. And I don't think we ever reach the middle fully, but to me, I work on it every day. (laughs) That's admirable. And it makes sense too, because you do need to combine those qualities. And certainly I think that the people who are the most effective at both influencing and leading are the people who who find themselves closer to that middle where they can combine the sense of strength and the sense of warmth. A thousand percent. And actually the strength and warmth insight is really what started to make me see what was wrong with how we were approaching things. Because if you plot the gender as a distribution over that axis, not all women and not all men, but you know, more women fall to the side of warmth and more men fall to the side of strength. And so I felt like we were saying that the strength side is inherently more value. I fall to warmth. And I was a little bit indignant. I'm like, you know what? 
Yeah, there's totally so much value to the, the warmth side of the equation. We just don't value it in a corporate structure, which is a competitive hierarchy for power. It's, it's a system that's biased toward strength type behaviors, but not because those behaviors are inherently better than the warmth behaviors. They're just more valued in this construct that's really, it's a zero sum game for power. What kind of warmth qualities are going to be valued in that sort of thing? And glad you made me sort of expand upon that because that's truly the foundation for the specific point of view that I started cultivating for Lean Out was really, oh, it's this system. It's, you know, warmth can't survive in a zero sum game that's all about when power politics is just, but again, it's the context, right? So like that was really the, the genesis for all of that. When I saw it through the lens of strength and warmth, things kind of snapped together for me and made me realize that it's, you know, a systemic thing. And that resonated with your audiences as well as, as you were giving presentations on this. I'm curious how it played out in your own career. I tell this whole story in the prologue, which is actually also posted on, I posted the prologue online. And it's really the story of how I came to write Lean Out. And it's on my Medium page, which is at Marissa Orr on Medium. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Okay, great. I was at Google for 13 years. And the last two is when I really started to do this women's lecture series. And it was going really well. And then in 2015, early 2015, when this was really picking up speed and I started presenting it as a lecture at, at New School and Pace University in the city, I got a call from Facebook. And somebody that I had once worked with, you know, they were looking for a marketing and strategy business partner. He recommended me to this woman who was looking for it, who had also worked at Google, but I, I didn't know her when she was there. And over, I don't know, nine months, 11 months, you know, we'd have, I, I talked to her about kind of what the opportunity was. I just was happy at Google for what it was worth. I wasn't looking to leave and I'm, I'm a single mom of three kids. And that was, that's a big change to consider, but over the year, this person had really convinced me that this was the right move and Facebook was smaller and more opportunity to make impact. And I also harbored this secret fantasy of like, oh, what better place to do a women's workshop? And, and again, at this time, I hadn't my, quite made the connection that it's totally antithetical to everything and leaning. At this time, I saw this sort of Pollyanna, like, well, we all care about helping women. So like, clearly, uh, you know, this series is going to be discovered and I'm, you know, Cheryl and Sandberg and I are going to be best friends and, you know, all that kind of silly stuff. So anyway, I went to Facebook and it was totally not what I had anticipated. And it, it really goes into interesting detail in the prologue, but essentially I was bullied by a very powerful senior woman at the company. The one who had convinced me to join kind of turned on me in my first week because I met with Cheryl Sandberg and she interpreted that as sort of like this power political move, which it was, it couldn't have been farther from that. I am the least political person on the planet, which is probably why I did that. Not at all, be, you know, I could not have foreseen a move, right? Like I don't interpret things in that way. So I don't, it's, it's actually, I could stand to be a little bit more political. But anyway, so <laughs> it was really brutal and it kind of broke me in my identity. I went from this great career. I was, I had tons of friends at Google. It, you know, I was well-respected there. I had a great, great reputation. I work really hard. And at Facebook, I was like contagious, you know, from this woman had sort of just made it very clear that I was to be isolated. And thank God, because it really pushed me into that dark place where you start asking yourself, 
who am I? What do I really want? And I don't think I would have ever gotten to that point had I stayed at Google, like happy and comfortable, or had things gone well at Facebook. I, I, I scary to think about because really what happened was it broke me. And I thought, ah, do I want this anyway? Like my dream is to write this book and speak. And in the back of my mind at Google, I had thought, oh, maybe in 10 years, I, if I really build this up over 10 years, I can do it full time. It was kind of my loose idea. And I thought maybe this is the universe giving me the kick in the butt I need to go after my real dream. And I knew I was going to be fired. Everybody in my life is encouraging me to leave, go back to Google, find another you know job in that world. I had a moment in the summer of 2017 where I just absolutely decided with every fiber of my being that this is what I was going to do. And I started, I changed my whole life. I started waking up at 4.30 in the morning to figure out how to write a book. What do I do? Do I need a book deal? How do I get a book deal? What is my, I worked on it for about an hour. Then I would get the kids up for school, take them and then go to my job at Facebook. And then in September, I get another gift from the universe. I was fired because I, I and I knew it was going to happen, but I had already been planning to leave. I don't think I would have had the courage to do it. You know, I'm a single salary household. Again, when it happened, I cried for about an hour and then I thought, you know what? This is what's supposed to happen. And by then I'd already finished, I had just finished the book proposal. So it was real, real great timing. It's true. One of the challenges of working in corporate America or corporate work in general is just the sense of silver handcuffs where, yeah, maybe in 10 years, maybe I'll get up the courage to go out and do the thing that I'm really dreaming about. But until they kick you out, sometimes you never get a chance to follow that dream. I'm intrigued that you were able to find the time while you were still working to get up early and do this extra research and do all of these things. It, it kind of speaks to the process that you followed for writing a book in general, which is a huge undertaking. I'm really curious how you structured that for yourself. Enormous undertaking, more than, more than I ever imagined. I can't stress enough how isolated and, and sort of disempowered I felt. Working on this book, actually waking up early, it, it gave me this incredible sense of power. Like I was taking things into my own hands. At the same time, it was a slow process of learning to get me to that point. When I started waking, I had been for the preceding year, really trying to learn how to discipline. So I started with Facebook turned me into a straight up Buddhist because in order to handle the emotional assault, I had to figure out how to get control of myself. So I started meditating and this, you know, when I talk about it now, it sounds like it happened as an avalanche, but it was a really slow kind of process that I still work on every day. And, and it started with, I'm just going to meditate five minutes a day wherever I can. And that grew into like, okay, I'll meditate. I'll wake up early and do it before the kids get up. And then it's, I started building and then I started reading about routines. I mean, routines are everything. And so I became, I'm like, oh, I need a routine. Now I have to tell you, I am like when my girlfriends and I talk now, they just, they can't believe that I've been able to do this because I am a very creative, kind of messy, last minute, impulsive, needy sort of panic to get something done, no discipline kind of person. That's how I, you know, saw myself for, for a long time. So I really had to rewire my whole personality and it started with meditation and, and really being aware. And then I built in the routines one of the good qualities that I'm very grateful to have is that I'm a fast learner and I love to, to learn things I'm interested in. So I kind of really drilled in. I'm like, okay, it's routines, it's discipline. It's not thinking about it and just doing it. And it's really hard for me, but I really worked on it. 
once I built that as a foundation, I started waking up early. And then when I found myself enjoying it, maybe I started at 530, right? And then I started slowly pushing it back because I really loved, I felt like I hadn't had time to myself in the morning for five, six years. So all of a sudden I had this space for me to just like be and like take care of myself. And it really was the foundation for being able to do that while I still had a job. It made me so much more effective in my job, strangely. And then also it really was the foundation for me to write a book because that's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've done really hard things in my life. I think a mindfulness practice can set you up for so much and it's rare to come to it. And I'm curious if there was a particular practice you followed. You said you were finding time about five minutes here and there for meditation. How did that end up structuring itself in your life? So the first time, so I tried meditation a couple times in in college after reading Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, but I did it a few times. And I, I remember it was kind of like one of these wow moments, but I just never did it again. So then 10, 15 years later, when I was at Facebook, I read Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. Rabicant was his last name. I was going through this hard time at Facebook and in it, he had talked about certain mantra, but also he just wrote one quick part about how he would meditate. He listened to this thing, blah, blah. blah and I thought, okay, I'll just start with that. Whatever it was he did, I went back to Power of Now. I reread it. I sort of like tried to ground myself in what is the point of meditation? And then, okay, I got it. And at first, you know, I used to get up with my hair on fire every morning, like getting everything out the door. So I thought, when do I meditate? Sometimes I would do it in a bathroom stall at Facebook because I just promised myself every day for five minutes, I don't care where, what, just get it done. And that was just the one true thing at that moment of my life. So it was really just, you know, following my breath and when my thoughts wander, bring back to my breath. But it really evolved over time. And then I read the next sort of seminal book that I read that changed the way that I meditated was The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. That was sort of life changing. That was really about meditating on sort of the watcher. So like who you are versus the things coming into your senses. So then I started meditating like that. I've I've tried a bunch of different things, but I do 15 to 20 minutes every single morning when I wake up. Have you influenced your kids to go in that direction too? You know, they know that I do it. They see me once in a while. They're young and I try and talk to them about it. But beyond that, no. It's a fascinating thing. I've I've actually interviewed some folks who have created meditation programs for children in kindergarten and taught entire classrooms full of kindergartners how to sit and meditate. It's incredible. I I think it should be taught everywhere. And I actually once looked online for some videos or whatever. I didn't look very hard, but I didn't find anything like amazing. I tried to do like Headspace for Kids with one of them. Maybe they were too young at the time, but it's changed my life. So I see it, how it could be helpful for so many people. I recommend you take a look at Andrew Nance's book, Puppy Mind, and I can send you a link to that too. Puppy Mind. Okay, I'm writing it down. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. And the time that it takes to write a book, of course, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up with a little bit of extra time in the morning, but the, the process of writing, and I'm curious what your process is when you write. Uh, my process is making, giving myself nervous breakdowns every day. Um <laughs> <laughs> It comes from the heart. That's genuine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how not to be. I just probably should learn. I actually need to learn. Again, it was routine was a a huge thing. It was butt in seat at certain time for 30 minutes. And then I would give myself a five to 10 minute break. And I, my bare minimum requirement was four 30 minute sessions in the morning. I run out of steam after that. And sometimes it would be more than four sessions. Sometimes, no, it'd be at least four But it was really difficult because sometimes I would spend 
days putting like life-size post-it notes all around my house with each chapter and my I mean I don't have my own office it's in the corner of the living room so my house would be covered you know it looked like a crazy person lives here and also I read tons of books on written by writers about writing like Anne Lamott and Stephen King and, and those people so I took like bits and pieces nuggets and inspiration but and then I think I wasn't getting anywhere and then I attended this writing workshop And one of the amazing things I got out of that was I need to write from beginning to end in one like draft where I'm just vomiting everything up at one time, like literally pouring things out of my brain onto the paper, no matter how bad it is. So the hack that I made for myself was not to reread a single word that I wrote. Because if I started going back and looking, I would start tinkering. And when I started tinkering, that was the end of it. I could go into a hole for, you know, two weeks on this one chapter. But as soon as I made that hack where I said, I'm going to write this draft, start to finish, I had a a general outline. So I had like 12 chapters, what each chapter was going to be about and a conclude, you know, and then from there, start to finish. As soon as I employed that hack, I will not reread a word. I pumped out the first draft in like six weeks. Now it was horrible, horrible. I mean, I used to have nightmares that something would happen to me and they would find this first draft and people would think that that was the book because it was so bad. And there were parts in there where I would literally write, I have no idea what I'm going to say for this part, but you know, refer to this link and here's what I'm thinking. And this is so horrible. What am I doing? How could I be writing a book? Like certain, whatever came in my mind, I wrote on the page and I didn't look back. And I think that was really the turning point because, you know, it's that perfectionism that keeps you from moving forward. So employing that hack bypassed that perfectionist tendency because I wasn't allowed to look. And then next thing I knew, I had gone so much forward. At that point, I guess that was when you either went back and did your own revisions or did you engage an editor at that point? No, I did all myself. So after I did that first draft, I spent probably two weeks revising each chapter before I sent it to my editor at the publisher. So it was in pretty good shape by the time I sent it over. And you mentioned you you sent it to a publisher. So this means this is not a self-published book. This is something you went through an external publisher. And these days, there are so many options. I'm curious why you went that way. Yeah. So I really love speaking. It's really my passion is to talk to people and engage them directly, like, in front of an audience. That was after all what I was doing with the lecture series and loving it. And I knew that I could never make the kind of salary that I had been making at Google and Facebook without writing a book first, because I didn't have a social following. I, I not, you know, active in social media. I hadn't written anything. Nobody knew me. I'm an unknown. I have no name. So I needed a book. And then I started looking online. Like I knew if I had a big publisher, that I could get higher speaking fees. And again, I'm a single mom of three kids and I can't be sort of traversing the country for smaller amounts of fees. Like it's just, it can't work. So I thought if I could, you know, do that, I'd get a higher fee. At the same time, I also was planning to write the book in parallel. So if I didn't get, finish the book, but if I didn't get the big publisher, I mean, self-publishing was always an option, but I figured why not try And then on top of that, I felt like I had something good. And it sounds crazy because I'm like the most, I'm not one of these people that like thinks what I do is good. (laughs) I'm like very overly critical of everything. 
But in my heart, I think I knew I was like, this book could be a real thing. Like when I could see it when I presented it to women and the reaction, I could see it in their eyes. It was like, aha. And that's my favorite thing in the world. It's like when I see people, I give a new perspective and I see, oh, yeah, ah, I didn't think about it that way. And I, I saw that so many times. I was like, there's something here. I might as well try. And it also felt like, in the corporate world, like I never valued myself enough. Like I took a pay cut to go to Facebook. Who does that? Because I was convinced by this, you know, woman and my, my own mind, like, oh, once I demonstrate my, once I have good performance, then I'll, you know, eventually over time I'm taking a lot. And at the end of the day, I was really just not valuing myself enough. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. And it works, and which is unbelievable because, as you know, like first-time nonfiction authors really don't get book deals unless they have these big followings or it makes business sense or they have a big name. But it's with HarperCollins leadership and they, you know, really believed in it. They saw the potential. I have to ask how you got up the nerve and how you put together the process to approach them in the first place. I think I was ignorant. And I think that's a lot of times a good thing. So I didn't approach them directly. So I, again, had studied carefully how this, I knew nothing about this world. I read a lot about how things work. And I read that for non narrative nonfiction, like mine, you don't have to write the whole book, you just need to write a proposal. So that appealed to like my inner lazy person I was like, Oh, I don't even need to write the book to get a book deal. So let me work on the proposal. So when I was waking up at 430, I was mostly working on the proposal, but there, I mean, they're big deals, right? Right? It took me months and months and it has the meat of the book in there. I did that and I was still working at Facebook. Then when I was fired, I finished up the proposal. I just researched. I started, I hustled. I cold emailed people all day. I met with anybody who would speak to me. I reached out to like kids I went to elementary school with who wrote books to see if like, because I was trying to get an agent at that time because the publisher wouldn't talk to me directly. And then like slowly but surely the, the dominoes sort of fell in place. But one thing about how did I have the nerve, it's funny because when I was finished with the book proposal, I sat on it for a little bit before setting it out. And in my mind, I rationalized why I was doing that. But really, I was scared. And then one night I went out to dinner with a, a friend of mine from Google who does like comedy writing. And she had written this like book of children's poetry randomly. And she said, oh, yeah, I just sent it to a, a few agents. And I was like, wait, you just sent it? She's like, yeah, I just emailed them. And something about her just emailing them this thing she did, I thought, oh, okay. I can do that too. And I had this whole list of email addresses I cultivated. But for a few weeks, I just sat there like doing other things until hearing that she did that. It's just, oh, why, why aren't I sending this out? It's fascinating to see how the mind works when you're confronted with something like that. It really is. So you'd put together a list of potential agents that you could reach out to. So you, you sent this book out through agents then and they contacted the publishers. Yeah. So my agent sent it to 20 publishers. Okay. And how many agents did you contact? Oh, a lot. Over a hundred. I don't mean to make you relive the experience, but I, mean, I know I know everybody's going to be curious. Yeah, yeah. No, please. It's difficult in learning how to deal with the kind of rejection that comes from having somebody either respond negatively or even worse, not respond at all. Totally. It's really, really hard. And it's also very hard to write a book every day for a year, not knowing how it's turning out. If it's horrible, it's it's all around. It's a whole bunch of uncertainty, a whole bunch of unknowns, a whole bunch of risk. And it's painful. Lots of days were painful, but you figure out how to keep going. 
did you find other work after Facebook to keep you going as well? It's funny. So I did one consulting project with Google and I actually, it was sort of doing a training for salespeople that I used to do before I left. And they, you know, I hired, they hired me as a consult, like on a consultant basis for this project. And I went out to Singapore for the project to do training in their office there. It didn't go very well. I realized when I got home that I had put off things with the book for like two months to work on this Google thing. And I thought, I don't want to do workshops anymore anyway. I don't want to teach people how to sell online video. Like it's not interesting to me, but the money was amazing. So I was seduced by that because it felt so good to have money coming in the door. But I realized, you know what? It didn't go well. And I took two months off the book. And again, I look for the sign from the universe. Like I did that for just for money and it took me away from, it's like, I'm either going to go all in with this book or I'm not. So like, what do I want to do? And that was the moment where I said, if I'm taking this risk, just dive in and do it because the other stuff's just going to be a distraction. And I heard Jim Carrey say something about his father. He watched his father. He said something like, you know, his, his father, I guess, hated his job and he got fired from it. And Jim Carrey said, if you could fail at something you don't want to do, you might as well try something you do and fail at that instead. <laughs> something like that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, Jim Carrey, that's so on point. And I was like, it came just at the right time. I'm like, all right, let's get back to this book. And then I got the agent like a month after that. I like that. I've heard people say, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? But this is kind of the different approach. It's like, what would you fail at if you could fail at anything? <laughs> Right. Like I failed at something I, I didn't, I was never fit in the corporate world and I faked, you know, my way through Google. I mean, I figured out how to get into a niche that I could be free in, but ultimately I failed and I was like, Ugh, I don't like this anyway. So might as well fail at, at trying my, my dream. And so you're still in a transition state right now. The book hasn't quite come out as as we're recording this, although it may have it may be out by the time we uh, we launch the episode. And you've started doing some speaking engagements, I guess. So I finished writing the book in February, and since then, trying to sort of get everything ready in the background in terms of speaking. So the online presence, the I've done done several engagements. Yeah, probably like five or six in the last few months, but I didn't start them until I finished the book. And then at the same time, we're doing so much media leading up to the release that I've been really busy with that too. And then hopefully once the book comes out, I'll be able to dedicate, you know, the next few years to speaking as much as possible. So do you have a vision of how you'd like your career to move forward in the next couple of years? Yes. As much as this book, I felt like I aged 30 years. I think I would like to write another one for sure. Other than that, writing another book and speaking, I am kind of, you know, open to what happens. I am not like a five year down the road. I have an exact picture of what I want, but I, I guess I kind of visualize it more of who I want to be. And when I think about it that way, I would say a best-selling author <laughs> and, you know, a teacher, I guess, in that way. It sounds like that's definitely the direction that you're going in. You know, you've, you've chosen a controversial topic. And I'm curious if you've gotten any feedback or pushback. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. So lots of people have read the early release copy. And there's a, a group of, on Facebook that we sent, you know, copies to for feedback. I have to say the response has been phenomenal. 
I mean, so many women, they write to me thanking me for writing this book because I was able to express some of their thoughts and feelings that they haven't been able to articulate. And they found it so authentic and refreshing refreshing, and really connected to the message. And they things I keep hearing is they feel heard and understood. And I have been really amazed and, and so grateful for that. It's funny. I don't see the topic as controversial. I think that helps me because I don't think when you read the book, I think I am so real about my experiences. Look, I'm naive. I know people will hate on me and say whatever. I'm ready. I understand that's coming. But I think what stands out about my book is it's so ordinary in terms of like, so many working women look at it, read it and be like, yes, that happens to me all the time. They really connect with it. I, at the end of the day, am telling my truth. And so I have to stay like that comforts me. Like this is really from like my insides, (laughs) like it's really me and it's my truth. And I tell the truth and I do my, you know, best job at sort of making my points. And the intention I have is really good. And I think that that comes through. And so I think it makes it a little less controversial. And I also think that I'm a little naive. So I guess I will deal with whatever, you know, whatever the sentiment is. I, you know, it's my truth and and, and not much I can do. Well, I know this is going to pique the curiosity of a lot of people who are listening. So where can I tell people to go to find out more about you and your writing? Sure. So the prologue is at that medium is at medium. So it's medium.com slash Marissa or M-A-R-I-S-S-A-O-R-R. I'm on Twitter as Marissa Beth or and the official book site is leanoutthebook.com. Fantastic. Well, Marissa, pleasure meeting you and thank you so much for being on the show to share your story. Thank you. It was so fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.